This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to Dummy, a twice-weekly conversation among editors and friends of Howler magazine. My name is George Qureshi. I'm the editor of Howler. Joining me in the tiniest studio in all of Miami is still the only member of this podcast to have scored a goal for Arsenal. He's now a scout for the Gunners, Danny Carbassian. Hey, Danny. How's it going, George? Could be better. Uh, David Goldblatt, the author of The Ball is Round and Fuji Ball Nation, joins us from Bristol, England, not Connecticut. David, hi. Good evening. Coming up on the show, we will talk about a truly memorable night for the U.S. men's national team. Anxiety, heartbreak, hope, pride, I guess, is what we can come away with, maybe. Uh, of course, Tim Howard. Um, and that's really all I need to say about this game, Tim Howard. Uh, we'll also take a quick look around the rest of the World Cup, uh, including the keepers who have sort of stolen the show uh, so far in the knockout stages. We have a quick piece from Alan Black, a columnist for the San Francisco Chronicle and Howler Magazine's resident curmudgeon about what it's like supporting a team that's not even playing in the World Cup. And finally, we'll talk to Emilio Bruna. Emilio is a professor in the Wildlife Ecology and Conservation Department at the University of Florida. He's the editor-in-chief of the academic journal Biotropica. 
Uh, we'll talk to him about how Brazil is not exactly following through on some promises it made uh, about environmental conservation for, for the World Cup and what a group of people are doing to change that. So plenty to talk about, but of course we have to start with the game that just ended. We're recording this minutes after Belgium shocked the United States and sent them packing uh, from the World Cup in the round of 16. Okay, so the stat that we should talk about is not that the U.S. had 53% possession, according to FIFA's website, uh, but I think that Tim Howard had more saves than any goalkeeper uh, in any World Cup game since 1966, which is incredible. Danny, is that a good thing? Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good thing in terms of trying to keep the score down, but when it comes to the fact that your goalkeeper's having to make all these huge saves, I mean, something else isn't going well. Um, Tim, I thought, was absolutely fantastic. I mean, you have to be silly not to think that he wasn't. Um, but as, as we said, you know, Belgium came, they, they, they attacked so well. They have so many options going uh, up front, and their movement off the ball was excellent. Uh, Origi's hold-up play was fantastic, which actually brought in uh, the rest of their attacking force, which forced Tim Howard into making all sorts of saves throughout the night. But, um, you know, it was, it, was a, it was a big test for the team, and I, I thought, you know, as you said, like there, a, lot of pride, a lot of pride was on the line. I thought they did really well, but Tim Howard did have to make some massive saves throughout the night. David, you and I spoke really briefly before we started recording. You were giddy. Was this one of the best games in the tournament, in your opinion? Oh, yeah. I mean, I have a kind of taste for backs-to-the-wall siege mentality, impossible odds kind of game, and and it delivered it. It's amazing to watch people, you know, with the way they play, put their heart on their sleeves, and as the cliche goes, really give everything. And I mean, I'd actually given up, you know, halfway through, uh, <laughs> through extra time. I thought that's it, two nil. And the last 12 minutes of the game were just sensational, fueled by the most kind of ludicrous thoughts of possibility and hope. And, you know, crudely put, that's what you pay your money for, no? Yeah. So one thought is, why didn't we do that from the beginning? And then the other thought is, if we had done that from the beginning, we would have gotten roasted, uh, even worse because, you know, we wouldn't have been, defending at all we would have left ourselves wide open for for counterattacking and and you know a guy like hazard who is so fast uh so skillful um i tend to agree with danny that you know tim howard was spectacular but the fact that he needed to make all those saves is a really damning just it's, it's a really damning piece of evidence there for for the u.s team we we weren't organized enough to to keep belgium out they were getting through if you look at courtois he made some great saves as well but nowhere near what howard was called on to do just because we weren't getting close enough to take those shots. Yeah, I thought. Uh, I think this was definitely the U.S.'s toughest, toughest game, and, and that's saying you know we played Germany, Portugal, and Ghana in our group, which obviously speaks loads about our group. But um, what Belgium, what Belgium did really well, what I think the other teams haven't been able to do, and we spoke about this last time, was Germany played with a false nine as well, and and Belgium through Origi had a, a huge, strong uh, central, you know, out and out striker up there who. Uh, as I said, was able to hold the ball up and then bring these guys in, like Hazard, De Bruyne, and, and Mertens as well. And, and, and these guys are all very, very good on the ball. They're, they're able to go outside and put a cross in, and they're able to come inside as well. And um, Michael Ballack said right after the game, uh, when they asked him, they said, what do you think about the game? He said the U.S. has to get better technically. And I think that was the biggest thing that just stuck out, is how comfortable Belgium are on the ball. I mean, there are points in the game where, and I know Hazard's meant to be one of the best players in the world, and you see him on the ball... And he, he just has the ball, and the U.S. players have to respect him so much because of the amount of options that he has when he is on the ball. And at one point... And you don't I, mean options, uh, um, you know, to pass the ball off. You mean options to beat them. 
to beat them. Yeah, I mean, he can he can pass if he wants, or he can he can go left if he wants, he can go right if he wants, he can shoot if he wants, and uh, and, and you see it because he got the ball, and at one point he was just about twenty five yards out and actually walking with the ball towards towards the defender, and that defender is you know down in his defensive stance, like still worried, and and Hazard's essentially standing straight up, right. um, and you still don't know what's going to happen. David, you mentioned that the the English commentators had some some really nice things to say about the U.S. national team. Uh, what were they What were they saying about the team during <laughs> well, the game? Well, I was watching BBC and uh, the professional Yorkshireman, the gruff Danny Murphy, um, who you'll know, I'm sure, from Fulham, uh, said, uh, you know, not grudgingly, actually, he said, of the U.S. team, oh, they're a proper team and, and these are proper fans. Yeah, and and my response to that is, I don't know if I want to be praised by the by the English for for our grit and determination because look how far that's gotten you guys. <laughs> if only, if only there'd been so much grit and determination <laughs> as they say. You know, if you'd offered me that before the match, I'd have bitten your hand off. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, what do we think about the substitutions? Josie Altidore was clearly a mirage, something that Klinsman was using to strike fear into the hearts of uh, Belgians all over the world. Yeah, so I guess Fabian Johnson, well, Klinsman was forced into making the first change when Fabian Johnson went off with a, another hamstring. Um, Yudlin came on and did really well. You know, he, he kind of added on to the performances that he's given in the previous games, was able to get up and down that right-hand side and, um, you know, gave gave Hazard a run for his money in terms of uh, pace and quickness at times. And even when Hazard, I thought, Thought he was through a couple of times. Yedlin recovered quite well and, and put in a good tackle. Uh, Wando came on as well and arguably missed the biggest chance of the game, especially for us, uh, which is frustrating. But any striker, you know, will have to just bounce back and get over that and try to forget it as quick as possible. And then, of course, Julian Green came on and scored that goal, which we'll probably remember forever. Yeah, so let's talk about the substitutions first. I want to talk about David. So, listeners, I don't know if you know this, but when you picture David, you should picture a, a guy with dreadlocks. Uh, and I want to talk about your brother in dreadlocks, Kyle Beckerman, was not chosen to start this game after having a really good tournament. Three very, very solid games where I think he surprised a lot of people who thought maybe he couldn't hack it at this level. Yeah, and the best white man dreadlocks in uh, in the tournament as well. That is it definitely was true. surprising not to see him. He'd been fearsome in the tackle, very solid. You know, something really strong in the middle. I didn't really get it. What's your, what's your thoughts? Why not play the dude? It's a really good question. I, I'm not sure if it has, I'll, I'll offer my hypothesis, which is that it wasn't as much about Beckerman's shortcomings as about Jeff Cameron's strengths in the middle. Cameron is a good, I would say, I'm eyeballing here, but six inches taller than, than Kyle Beckerman, uh, and offers maybe a little bit more defensive and, and offensive uh, power in the air. And so that's, that's one, one idea that I have. Otherwise, I can't honestly tell you why Kyle Beckerman wasn't playing in that game. Yeah. I thought another, another thing, um, another reason I thought he played probably because Hazard, Mertens, all these guys are, are quite quick in the, and I think the pace of the game was always going to be really, really quick. Uh, with that said, Beckerman did really well against Kanda as well, and that game wasn't slow. Um, so it was, it was a bit puzzling, especially after his, his first three appearances, but. I think one thing we missed with him out was someone who could provide a little bit of the the calm passing that we've been missing in the middle. It felt a little bit like a wasteland in there, uh, you know, just up and back. The U.S. went through a stretch in the first half, especially where it felt like we were just getting the ball out to the halfway line and then 
bunkering down for another onslaught from Belgium um, and someone who could maybe keep the ball, pass it around, just be be a calm a calm presence in the midfield was something that we were missing. Yeah, I think immediately when you become a, when you're in the, when you're playing in the midfield as opposed to playing in the back as Cameron has in the previous games when you're when you're in the back you can you can kind of just you know play simple balls and let the midfielders do it and I think when you do get yourself in the midfield and find yourself there you think immediately that those creative balls rest on your shoulders and. I think at times, like you saw Cameron get the ball and then just clip a ball into space, like down the right hand side or down the left hand side, where where we've had, um, you know, some some good results in the past couple games, but it w- just wasn't on, and they were, and as you said, they did feel forced. Whereas Kyle Beckman probably would have just, you know, played a square ball or just retained possession a little bit better. And and as you said, it's that it's that little calm in the midfield. And the last team you want to do this against is Belgium, who were obviously ready to come right back down our throats every time we lost the ball. Right. Um, so, David, are you puzzled at all about Chris Wondolowski? As, as someone who hasn't seen him play very much in MLS, I would imagine. No, I haven't seen a lot of a lot of air before. He's new to me. Yeah. Uh, you know when when they came, when he came on and he he's he's a just for background he's a great goal scorer in major league soccer he's scored a ton of goals for for a not terribly great team and yet everyone in in the room where i was watching the game groaned when they saw him coming on i i was a little bit puzzled about you know why josie wasn't coming on if if he w- were really available uh which clearly he was not but also aaron johansson uh, seems like it seems like he blew his chance in the first game and and hasn't featured again uh and so i i don't know what's going on there but you know danny pointed this out when we were watching the game uh you know if you're belgium you can bring on the kaku as a substitute and the u.s down you know maybe not down a goal he came on when we were tied but needing a goal brings on chris wondolowski and i just you know his, <laughs> his his best and possibly only chance was at the very end of regulation time when he missed a point blank shot that the, the the linesman was raising his his flag anyway to call offside, but Wondolowski missed the shot. It, it was it would, it would have been wrongly offside, but that to me was just sort of at this level. Those margins are, are so thin. That's the kind of shot you have to make. You have to be. You have to score that goal. Yeah, and uh, I, I think so. Lukaku comes on as a sub, and right away <laughs> it's just like this injection of power, as if as if there wasn't enough power and pace up front with Origi already. Uh, Lukaku comes off the bench and and once again provides that option. Um, where they could play the ball in and hold it up and bring those guys in. And we just didn't have that throughout. And maybe maybe he brings on Wondolowski. Well, he, he did bring on Wondolowski to allow Clint to kind of drop in uh, and, and be able to run at players again. And when he did that, Bradley dropped off as well. And that's when we actually started playing our best, ironically. You know, I, I know we all keep saying was Wondolowski the right option. But when, when he did come on, all of a sudden the U.S. looked like we had something in the attack. But yeah, from in, in terms of just depth, it's it's pretty frightening to see that they have Belgium have Origi, who's the 19 year old, and then Benteki, who's 24, and and Lukaku, who's who's 21. It's just it, it's it's pretty startling that they have that much talent up front. So I know David, you are a a neutral observer here, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the U.S. performance overall, we I, I believe Belgium had as many shots tonight as as the U.S. team had in the entire mm-hmm. tournament. Um, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a great showing. We had one win, uh, a tie, two losses. I think we got our money's worth entertainment-wise out of that kind of performance. But it, if you're talking about challenging for the World Cup or even to get into the final eight, we have a ways to go. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Well, the, the way I would put it is, you know, if you are going to challenge for the World Cup 
and are going to create a league that is challenging with the best of the European and the South American leagues. You know, partly that's about building up a cadre of technically brilliant players, but much, much more than that, it's about building a level of kind of audience appeal that's going to sustain that in the long term. And while, you know, as you rightly say, it was not an exhibition of technical excellence, you know, if it's about winning hearts and minds, then it's a pretty exceptional performance. Yeah, no, that's true. And, and part of the struggle here, part of the, part of the mission of a World Cup is not just to perform on the field, but to increase awareness, increase the number of fans. Um, I think that even a losing effort can, can do that when you see the team really just playing clearly trying and clearly going for it. Americans love that, um, mm. as they should. I mean, it's an, a really admirable quality of our team. And I think it's one of the only defining things that a thing that you can say is truly American about soccer here, uh, is that we were beaten and we didn't know it. Um, and we, we, we almost weren't, we're unbeaten because of that. And that's a really, that's a really kind of amazing thing that I think other, other country fan bases would, would love to have in their teams that, that maybe isn't there. So a quick word about goalkeepers. France Germany is interesting because they have you will see we'll see two goalkeepers there who like to play with the ball at their feet. Uh, we all saw Manuel Neuer uh, against Algeria take 21 touches outside of his penalty area, uh, and I think every time he did it, I was just I, I was just thinking to myself again, like hasn't Yogi and the loved- goal, the goal that he made. I mean that you know his goal kick was like a fabulous kind of upfield pass that made the goal, no? Of course, and Hugo Lloris is also famous for being able to play with his feet, you know, relieving pressure for Spurs and and playing almost as a as an as a sweeper for them. Um and so we're going to see that but I I I want to call out the players, the goalkeepers who have who have really made an impression. Uh, I would say Tim Howard, obviously, Memo Ochoa in the group stage, uh, Vincent Anyema for Nigeria had an amazing game against, against France. Mm-hmm. And of course, and I want to make sure I'm saying this right, Rice Mboli uh, for Algeria had a great game as well. Now, Danny and I were talking about before, before the podcast, these, these goalkeepers all had excellent games. They all are also out of the tournament. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not sure that you want to be calling attention to yourself as a goalkeeper, even if it's in a good if it's in a good way. Yeah, it's if if you're having a wonderful game, then it means you're probably getting peppered. So it's probably not the best of things. But what what is great about it though is the fact that there have been all these great saves, but there's also been all these great goals too. So not only has it been a tournament where kind of goalkeepers have shined, but there's also been some amazing goals as well. You know, so those keepers will definitely be missed. But uh, there's there's a couple of keepers left in the tournament that can definitely turn heads still. Well, it sounds counterintuitive, right? Because you think, oh, if the goalkeepers are shining, then there probably there probably aren't many goals being scored. But I think you have to have a really attacking, goal filled tournament in order for goalkeepers once in a while to to make a to make an impression. And a penalty shootout or two. Let's you know not forget Julio Cesar you know, has carried Brazil through to the quarterfinals. That's right. This is both the uh, the tournament of the goal scorer and the tournament of the goalkeeper, which is kind of amazing. It's time to move this discussion off the field. Up next, we have Emilio Bruna, a professor at the University of Florida. He's going to tell us about some of the environmental promises the Brazilian government made in their World Cup bid. You may be able to guess they are not being fulfilled. <music> 
Okay, I'm joined by Emilio Bruna. He is a professor of tropical ecology and Latin American studies at the University of Florida. He's also the editor-in-chief of the scientific journal Biotropica. Biotropica is a journal about the uh, the ecosystem. And you published a story in the May issue that has to do with Brazil's ecosystem and something to do with Fuleca, the mascot of the World Cup. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd be glad to. Thanks for having me on. Felipe Melo from the Federal University of Pernambuco and several of his colleagues wrote a really interesting essay in which they basically called out the Brazilian government for failing to live up to several of the environmental commitments it made as part of its bid to host the World Cup. For lots of major sporting events, sustainability has become a really important component of the bid package. And that usually is things like offsetting the carbon emissions that come from transporting the teams and the players and the tourists around, or it could be things like having solar panels on the stadia or even things like recycling and waste. In fact, for this World Cup, uh, having tobacco-free stadiums is part of the sustainability initiative. But for this World Cup, which is being hosted by Brazil, which is known for its really exuberant biodiversity, uh, the Brazilian government wanted to do something really special, which is highlight not just things like recycling and carbon offsets, but the biodiversity of Brazil itself. This was going to be really central to their bid process. And as part of doing that, they had as their mascot, Fuleco, which is the three-banded armadillo. It's a highly endangered species of armadillo, which is found in an ecosystem called the Cachinga in northeastern Brazil, which is itself highly endangered. The really cool thing about this species of armadillo is that when it needs to defend itself from predator, it rolls up into a ball. So it's the perfect mascot for a soccer tournament, and it's obviously a great mascot to represent Brazil's commitment to protecting its environment. And so this was the idea to put this front and center. Emilio, tell me about the, the promises that Brazil made and what is the timeline for starting to fulfill those promises? They made lots of the usual promises, carbon offsets, efficient stadia, things like that. But one of the really important things that they promised to do was to build up the infrastructure in Brazil's national, state and municipal parks so that tourists could go and visit them. Now, Brazil has probably the largest protected area network in the world, but a lot of these parks have no staff, no funding, and very little infrastructure. So it's not something tourists can take advantage of if they actually go to visit. So one of the promises that they made, they were going to improve the infrastructure of about 45 protected areas. By a year later, they'd already whittled it down to 16 areas, and only 2% of the funding had been released to do that. Another thing that they wanted to do was to develop a conservation plan for the mascot, the armadillo, and that wasn't done either. So they fell behind almost immediately, like they did with a lot of the other promises that were made, both the socioeconomic development and also the broader environmental goals as well. So I think people naturally focus on the hardships of the people involved, the people who are being, uh, whose, whose homes are being uh, torn down, who are, or, you know, organizing for human rights infrastructure and, and, you know, just things that make their lives easier. I guess it's, it would be hard maybe to, to drum up support for making Brazil follow through on the promises it made about the ecosystem. But then again, the ecosystem in Brazil is extremely important to the rest of the world. Can you explain a little bit about how connected a society like the United States might be to what goes on in Brazil's sort of wild areas? Brazil has some of the most remarkable and largest ecosystems in the world. So we've got the Amazon, we've got the Pantanal, which is basically a swamp the size of France. You've got the Catinga in the Northeast, which is a giant dry woodland, which is home to 20 million people. Some of them are the poorest people in the world. It's incredibly biodiversity rich. 
the Atlantic forests that used to cover about 10% of Brazil. We've got uh, the Cerrado, which is the giant savannas in the central part of Brazil. This is Brazil's breadbasket and what's turned it into an agricultural superpower. So the protection of the environment in Brazil and the way in which Brazil promotes environmental stewardship influences climate throughout the world. It influences agricultural commodities and their pricing throughout the world. And of course, those people who live in those ecosystems, which is the majority of Brazilians, are going to depend on them for ecosystem services like clean water, clean air, and the products that they use both locally and export. There is no way to separate Brazil's environment and the protection of that environment from its own socioeconomic development and than the way in which it reaches out to the rest of the world. So, Emilia, what are the prospects for Brazil actually making some of these promises come to fruition and, and beefing up the infrastructure and, and the resources available to these national state parks and actually doing something to, to make the ecosystem better there? I think that Mello and uh, his colleagues did something really smart, which is that one of the things they put forward in their essay was the idea that Brazil should protect 1,000 hectares. 1,000 hectares is about 2,500 acres for every single goal that's scored in the World Cup of the mascot's habitat, which is highly critically endangered. This caught a lot of attention in Brazilian media. It was picked up by a blogger for the Estado de São Paulo, which is one of the most important newspapers in Brazil. His blog post promoting the idea that you could protect a thousand hectares of habitat with every goal that's scored, which, by the way, if you went with previous World Cups would end up being about 171,000 hectares. So a very respectable piece of this habitat would be protected. His original Facebook post was then shared by over 20,000 people. So it caught on like wildfire. It's gone crazy on social media. It's starting to get attention in broader media outlets internationally. And almost um, within three weeks of the essay being published, although there's no direct link necessarily uh, the Brazilian government has already put out a management plan for this endangered species and the protection of its habitat, which they're going to move forward with within the next six months. So I think that their essay has already really had an impact in part because of what this mascot was supposed to do, which was attract people's attention. It's a great mascot. People love it. And these authors were able to use that appeal that it has to the public to jumpstart the conservation of this species and its habitat. And and this World Cup, if they if they were to go with the thousand hectares per goal um, target, would actually be even better because as of this afternoon's games, I think we've scored something like 147. We, you know, I wasn't exactly on the field, but um, you know, but the teams have scored 147 goals so far. So. If the Brazilian government were to pick up um, that challenge, I think we could do a lot to conserve this species and its environment. Excellent. So we'll have links to the, the paper and some of the media around it on our page. Emilio Bruna, Professor of Tropical Ecology and Latin American Studies at the University of Florida. Thank you so much for joining us on Dummy. Hey, I had a great time. Thanks a lot. The World Cup is a celebration of soccer for all the teams playing, but it's a little bittersweet for the ones on the outside looking in. Alan Black joins us next for his take on supporting a team that didn't even make it into the tournament. Some countries don't get to go to the World Cup. Take Scotland, for example, where I'm from. This summer we've seen enough samba-dancing Brazilians, chilled-out Chileans, Dutch partiers in Copacabana Beach, 
and Yanks yelling. Stop it. We have to sit at home twiddling our thumbs. The only solace? Seeing a Scottish guy on TV in amongst a crowd of Uruguayans waving the Scottish flag, delirious with joy for a goal that Uruguay have just scored against England. Is this what it's boiled down to? Nations that never go to the World Cup or it's been so long no one can remember being there, now reduced to laughing at other people's misfortunes. <laughs> England! <laughs> oh, come on! The Scots invented soccer. We gave the world the passing game. We beat the English before George Washington. Come on! Please give us a ticket to the ball. No! Yes, we are stuck on that list of forgotten World Cup nations. Chekhov names like Luxembourg and Liechtenstein and San Marino. You'll have to look them up in the remote part of the Atlas. Now we can go back to twiddling our thumbs and laughing at others' misfortunes. My heart is set in a Okay, that almost does it for us, but before we go, I want to ask you guys about Tiki Talka this week. Uh, I I gotta say, I'm a little bit on overload. Uh, soccer is everywhere, and uh, it's hard to pick out really good things, but I'm sure we have some. Danny, you just showed me something you're going to talk about. It's pretty good. What is it? Yeah, I just wanted to talk about the, and we keep talking about the support for, for the U.S., but more so on a global scale. I thought it's been awesome throughout the tournament how... Whenever a goal is scored or a game is won, the cameras will go to, you know, Mexico City, the Zocalo, or they'll go to Paris, or they go to um, Chicago, D.C., all these cities, and everywhere is just absolutely packed. And it, what made me say that was there was an article uh, in the Alaskan News or something where they opened up an auditorium and they're selling tickets, and it's a 400-seater auditorium that's selling out for these soccer games, which is uh, pretty awesome. So I'm I just sure thought now that FIFA knows about that, they're going to come in and get their cut. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, that's great. Yeah, and you showed me a picture of, uh, what was it, Dallas? It was, yeah, Dallas, the Cowboy Stadium. is just completely full watching the U.S. game just now. Amazing, on the big, humongous, Huge like, screen. cube that descends from the sky. <laughs> okay, David, how do you, you uh, want to follow that up? Well, funnily enough, that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. It's been just the most extraordinary celebrations around the world that I've been catching my eye. And uh, downtown Algiers at the moment that uh, Algeria qualified for the second round, was just engulfed in fireworks and magnesium flames and people leaping and dancing, and that was pretty extraordinary stuff. I also like the way that, um, you know, people deal with defeat as well and what that tells us. And I noted that Vladimir Putin, who um, does like to back a winner, claimed that he didn't even watch Russia's game with Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why? Because he thought that he he, didn't he need enigmatically to? said no more, man. He's the prez. He doesn't have to explain. He just says. 
Okay. Well, so at le- as long as he doesn't try to force everyone else in the country to stop watching soccer. That- well, they showed Obama here cheering, I believe that we can win. <laughs> it's a slightly different. Oh, boy. He's going to get killed in the... I guess he doesn't have to run for election anymore. Nope. Red states will not like that. Um, okay. Well, I want to talk about... I, I know I've used him before. Bobby Warshaw. <laughs> and the stuff I've edited. He had a piece that went up on Deadspin today about having played against Kyle Beckerman that was really amazing. I think... Something that I love about this is this window into some of the trash talk and just conversation that goes on among players on the field that the the cameras, uh, the cameras don't pick it up. You know, you even now have Messi and those guys sort of covering their mouths when they talk, um, so that no one can read what they're saying on their lips. Um, Bobby writes about having played against Kyle Beckerman when he was a little younger and Kyle Beckerman just trash talking him the whole time and and the thing that was really funny is that Kyle Beckerman kept calling uh, Bobby Warshaw a young cock which I don't even know what that is like I'm not even sure <laughs> I don't I don't know is so what would throw me off about that if <laughs> if Kyle Beckerman was calling me a name I could be I I could get over that I could handle that I would be like, okay you know he's calling me a dirty name I can you know I know I'm a decent soccer player I'm just going to keep playing what I what what I find really distressing about this is that I don't know what that means. And it would, I would be wondering the whole time I would want to ask him that would probably play into his mind games. Like I'm showing weakness cause I don't know. And yet I don't actually think it's a real thing. I think it's a name Kyle Beckerman makes up to throw younger players off their games. Danny, were you ever called a young cock? I, I was never, and like you, I'm not 100% sure what that means. <laughs> were you ever, like, is that a tactic that other teams use? Like, when you went to play in England, were other defenders like, what What, what were the things they would do to throw you off? I mean, they de- definitely the trash talk element, it can get in your head, especially if you're a young kid and you're com- you come on and you're kind of bright-eyed and everything, and all of a sudden a guy that you look up to is talking trash to you and running his studs down your Achilles and all that sort of stuff, which is quite common at the top level. But, um, yeah, I mean, it can, if you, if you know, if you're not used to it, but see a Breck Shea being called a young cock would make sense. He's got that sort of rooster like <laughs> hairdo, but and just the I'm question back. I want to ask George is, is it better or worse to be an old cock? You know, maybe Kyle Beckerman thinks of himself as an old cock. <laughs> and therefore I really hope that, you know, this, this podcast is going out on Slate. I really hope that we we may have to bleep this out. And it's going to sound like it's going to sound like Kyle Beckerman was calling Bobby Warshaw something way worse than a than a young cock. It's going to you know people's <laughs> imaginations are going to be running wild. But uh, I can I, I guess we'll I don't know how we're going to solve this problem. I hope I just hope the censoring isn't that isn't that bad. Um, yeah, that that's great. If you go to Deadspin and just search Bobby Warshaw, Kyle Beckerman, it's really a piece about how Beckerman is a, the best fowler that. Warshaw ever played against, and that's a real skill because it, it, that really does throw players off their game. There, there's a great gif of him grabbing Schweinsteiger's shirt uh, in the game against Germany. Schweinsteiger just like hitting the floor as though he'd been, uh, you know, slammed, uh, body slammed by Jermaine Jones. Uh, but but you know, it's a it's a great little piece, and it gets it gets us onto the field, which is something that not a lot of soccer pieces do. So I, I really like that. That does it for this episode of Dummy. I want to thank our guests, Emilio Bruna and Alan Black. Thank you also to our panel, David Goldblatt, Danny Carbassian, for joining us all summer. Thanks to Slate, Josh Levine, Mike Volo, and Andy Bowers. Most of all, thank you for listening. If you're not following us on Twitter, you should. We're at What a Howler. Same thing for Instagram. The Howler Singers are led by Lindsay Elliott. They are members of the choral ensemble Ghostlight, and they made our theme tune. 
All the rest of the music is by Brian Kim. This podcast was produced by Matthew Nelson, with help from Ryan Katniss, Kira Deppenbrock, and Malena Barajas. Oh, one other thing I want to mention. I mentioned the Slate guys. If you're listening to this podcast in Howler's feed, you should also check out Hang Up and Listen, which is Slate's really great sports podcast. They, uh, You may be confused about why I'm thinking Slate. They have put our podcast in their feed all summer, helping us to reach new listeners, and we're really grateful. As I was saying, this podcast was produced by Matthew Nelson with help from Ryan Katniss, Kira Deppenbrock, and Malena Barajas. My name is George Koreshi. I'll be back with you next week along with all the rest of these dummies. Until then, happy World Cup. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs>